This is Who She Knows, a podcast produced by She Knows Media. And this is your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer for She Knows Media. Today, we'll be exploring the different kind of food justice issues that exist in our country, in the United States, and what's being done to make fresh food, healthy food, and a nourishing diet more attainable to more people. Uh, to put this in a frame of reference, here's a somewhat startling statistic. The Associated Press reported in 2015 that 18 million Americans live in what is called food deserts, uh, sections of our country that are devoid of supermarkets offering whole foods like fruits and vegetables. These neighborhoods do tend to have lots of fast food and convenience store options. So that's just one of multiple issues that exist around food justice here. And to kick off our discussion, I am joined by Anupama Joshi, co-author of the book, Food Justice, and she is executive director and co-founder of the National Farm to School Network. Anupama, welcome to Who She Knows. So happy to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we really dig in, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you come to focus on food and, and really specifically this topic of food justice? Great question. I love food um, <laughs> and, you know, ended up in a family that loved food too and really took a lot of pleasure in, um, in, in cooking together and, you know, enjoying our, our meals together. And so as I, as I grew up, I got interested in in the field of nutrition and um, got a degree in nutrition, really realized that there was a larger connection between the way food is produced, um, the way food is distributed, um, and the connections that agriculture um, has with the kinds of foods that are um, that are made available to to the population, and really got got into thinking about the entire system um, as a whole, and not just thinking about food in you know, calories in, calories out, mm -hmm. which, you know, is the traditional way of thinking about nutrition. And that it really is what got me, got me thinking about, um, about food justice, uh, knowing that there are, uh, there are huge disparities in, mm -hmm. in the kinds of foods that are available to, to populations, not just in the United States, but also all across the country. And all of it is, you know, interconnected, um, the way, you know, there's, the, the way food is consumed in the United States and, and what is you know exported out to other countries impacts what is eaten in other countries too. And mm -hmm. so it is all a huge, large system that needs to be uh, needs to be changed for you know for really really realistic change to happen in communities and at the individual level. Do you remember if you grew up um, in a family that cooked together and ate together and, and food was really important and, and not just for sustenance, but culturally. Do you remember when you realized that not everybody had that kind of relationship to food? Um, I try to think back to when I was a kid, and I'm not sure when I realized that, that there was inequity there. Do you, re do you remember that at all when you realized? I realized it when I had my, when I became a mother, I mm. should say. I have a 14-year-old um, son, and so as I started interacting with families that um, that he was friends with, and those friends started coming over to to our place, I realized that the kind of food that my son was eating was very different, that he was used to because his palate was already developed, mm. eating fruits and vegetables was very, very different from what I was trying to feed to these friends who were 
um, sitting on my dinner table and I could not get them to eat fruits and vegetables whatsoever because hmm. they were not used to it. Oh, and, wow. Um, that, I think, just got me... Yeah, that, I mean, that was my sort of first realization that it is not just about, I mean, it is about access, yes, but it's also about the way kids are, um, you know, are, are being brought up in, in terms of their connection with food, you know, their understanding of what food does and how important it is for all the different things that we want to do in our life. So I mentioned in uh, my introduction the term food desert, and I kind of high level defined it. Is is there is that an actual like is there a definition for that that's pretty hardcore that everyone in this area of expertise recognizes how you define what a food desert is? Um, a lot of people in the food justice, um, the food security area of work um, actually take um, take offense at the word food desert and oh, do yeah? not want to use it. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. When when you use the word dessert, it means that it, it, it implies that it is a you know natural ah. uh, phenomena that is happening, and uh, or it's a natural you know region or area of ge- geographical mm. you know, type of place that is there. Whereas um, the reason why there are areas where food or healthy food is not accessible is really a systemic issue, mm-hmm. and there are. Uh, infrastructure changes as well as policy changes that are facilitating the lack of this access in those areas. And so, you know, the, the use of that term in, in, in a lot of circles in folks that I know do not like to use that word. And so I just wanted to point that out. And, you know, people talk about um, areas with, you know, lack of access. You know, there are huge structural issues systemic issues that need to be resolved to make sure that all communities have access to the kind of food that we want uh, everybody to have. Well, thank you so much for pointing that out. I will never use the term again. And you know, this audience, our audience here is probably, you know, 90% word nerds. So I think, you know, we talk a lot about how words have meanings. So, so thank you very much. Do you have another way of referencing this phenomenon, though, that, um, and, and where does this happen the most? I think our assumptions would be it happens in urban centers in the lower income or underserved neighborhoods. That's a great question as well. And I think um, that's really the premise. I mean, what do you call it, um, you know, is a great question, too. Um, mm. So we really are talking about um, the entire entire food system from production to, you know, to access to when it reaches your table. So we're talking about farm workers. We are talking about, you know, um, access and justice for restaurant and food service workers, Mm -hmm. access to land for farmers, subsidies, um, the location of, you know, grocery stores and the types of foods that are available in there. We are talking about native communities and traditional um, foods and, you know, what has happened um, in those communities. We are Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, systemic um, changes that can happen through federal policy and state policy that can impact all of these different things that I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of the frame that I would, um, you know, I would want your um, listeners to think about when they think about food or when Mm -hmm. they think about food access. And to answer your question about whether food access is an issue primarily um, in urban centers or not, I mean, certainly urban, you know, urban centers like um, LA, New York, Chicago are 
are often written about more in terms of you know being um, being places where there are lack of grocery stores you know or stores that are present you know are liquor stores or do not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables however the reality really is that rural um, areas and suburban areas you know face very similar access issues as well um, i'll give you a couple of statistics um, mm-hmm. That that will kind of put this in perspective. So I'm actually looking at a, a map that has been created by uh, Feeding America, an organization called Feeding America, and it's a map of food security in the United States. And as you look at it, what it's showing you essentially is that 54 percent of all counties that are food insecure are in rural areas. So 54 percent mm. in rural areas. Um, 62% of children in those areas are food insecure. And when you look at the map that I'm seeing in front of me, the darker areas that are more food insecure are in the south, the counties in the south of the United States. So in states like Mississippi, in states like um, Alabama, Arkansas, and then also in the southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, are are the highest areas where food security is the highest. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. These are also counties that are um, that are known to have the highest poverty rates in in rural in in rural areas. I mean, some of these reasons I'm, I'm mentioning poverty and food food insecurity and these words because all of this is connected. When you know rural areas are food insecure because there is poverty there and mm-hmm. um, there is. Uh, there are issues with you know uh, higher higher rates of unemployment or underemployment. Mm-hmm. There is lower levels of education and there's certainly lower levels of you know support for for the workforce like childcare or what have you, which mm-hmm. is again feeding back into you know poverty and access to food. So I, I would say that really the South and the Southwest are are regions of the country that are are in significant need of you know of support. Uh, we hear a lot more about urban areas mm-hmm. because that's a lot more written about urban areas. Um, there's certainly not not you know negating that there are urban urban disparities, um, but the rural areas are equally important. And in some ways it is, you know, it's, it's an interesting quandary because food is grown in rural areas. And so there are farmers that are growing this fantastic, wonderful food there, but their own families, you know, are food insecure. And to me, that's just not acceptable. I mean, that doesn't make sense at all. You know, it, right. it certainly needs to be, be changed. Uh, you know, if you are growing your, you know, if you're growing wonderful food that is healthy, um, your, your families should be able to afford it too. When you bring up farmers, that also makes me think of, I mean, the problem, like you said, from the very beginning, it's so huge and so, so systemic. I mean, I've heard that one, um, one of the most dangerous jobs in the United States has to do with food production, um, you know, some of the most dangerous jobs, uh, some of the most, you know, the jobs where there's the least worker protection has to do with agricultural and food, agriculture and food production. So there's this whole human element as well to um, on the other side of producing the food where there's a lot of justice issues, aren't there? There are. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, labor, farm labor, as well as uh, food services, food service industry labor issues mm-hmm. are are really significant farmer farm workers there are there are lots of stories horror stories i should say of you know bad treatment of farm workers you know the kinds of housing that they are provided the payments that they are provided you know per pound of product that they are picking and and the kinds of living conditions that they are provided is inhuman the same thing with restaurant workers and food service workers the hours that they are putting in yes. to produce the food that we all enjoy and 
the compensation that they're getting is is negligible for that. And, you know, it all ties back in also to, you know, access to land. So farm workers that are immigrant farm workers that come to this country, you know, put their blood and sweat in product, production of that food, often do not have, you know, do not have access to land or do not even have the, you know, do not have do not have a process by which they can access land even after, you know, even after spending many years in this country producing the food. And and that's just because of the way the, you know, system is set up that they are unable to access land. And, and I mean, certainly there are lots of interesting, innovative, positive things that are happening all across the country that we have highlighted some in the, in the book, Food mm-hmm. Justice. There's a lot more that has happened since then as well, which is really, really encouraging and heartening to see that there are community-driven, grassroots-driven initiatives that are that are really tackling this head-on because it has to happen, in my opinion, it needs to really happen from the ground up, but also, you know, also through um, policy initiatives at the federal level and at the state level, because unless those change, the change kind of needs to happen both from the bottom up and, right. and also from the, you know, from the top. So, you know, if I can digress for a second, I belong to this book club where all we read is books about social change issues. Um, and so we've covered like lots of ground, including um, food issues, but also issues with women, issues with racism, issues with uh, everything under the sun. And a phenomenon I've, I've noticed is that we're often super depressed when we have our book club meetings because a lot of the books, um, they, we don't know what we can do. We're like saying this is... This is um, a really big problem. I acknowledge it's a problem. I would like to do something about this problem. And now I don't know where to go or what to do with these feelings. Um, When you say, um, and I think most big systemic problems obviously require policy change. Um, And like you said, change from the community um, and from the grassroots. And so if you were speaking to let's say, an audience of busy women, mostly women who are trying to like get through their life but care about this and, and want to contribute in some way, um, what are the personal choices you think we can make that, um, you know, that make a difference? For instance, I mean, I think I know a lot of people who they're trying to buy organic, they're trying to buy, buy local. I go to the farmer's market. I go, you know, trying to do all of that. Does that even matter? And what personal choices could I be making? And then who should I be, what should I be getting involved with? Or who should I be pressuring? I love that question. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I answer that a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, your your choices, your personal choices in terms of where you're buying food and the kind of kind of food that you're buying and, and getting to know the farmer that, you know, is producing your food or knowing the source of your food is, is a personal choice. It's an important one and is certainly contributing to you know, to changing the overall system. A couple of a couple of paths, I think, that I will present. So the first one I will say, I'll bring it back to my organization, the National Farm to School Network, and mm-hmm. our website is farm to school, all one word, dot org. We are a national organization that supports individuals and communities and organizations that are working on farm to school, which it really means getting local and regional foods into cafeterias, into school cafeterias, so that the quality of food is improved, but also connecting kids with the source of their food by food and farm education in the classrooms, and then also school gardening activities, so that kids really get to taste food and, you know, through all their senses, not just taste, but, you know, feel and um, and smell and, and touch as well. And 
Um, so if you go to our website, farmtoschool.org, you can, you can become a member and receive information um, on a regular basis on what is happening across the country with Farm to School. Mm-hmm. We also, you know, we work on, on federal policies and, and state policies. So if there is a specific, um, you know, call for action that is happening uh, with regards to child nutrition policy that we are engaged in, you will hear about that as well. Secondly, I would say each one of us is, is you know, is living in a, in a community that has a school, um, elementary school, a middle school, a high school, and also has you know early care centers and child care centers that either our, our families ourselves are are using or that we have friends who have kids who are using. Connect with the the school administrator and or the administrator for the early care site or the child care site and um, you know find out, try and find out where the food comes from for you know mm. for these institutions, schools, and for early care centers. I say that really because i I truly believe that you know getting getting kids uh, excited about food at an early age is really critical. Palates are developed you know very, very early in life. Um, there's research, new research that shows that even even earlier than five years, what kids eat during the zero to five years of age is really. Uh, making their you know health outcomes for them you know at that at that time their adult health outcomes and so find out what's going on in your own community um, connect with uh, you know with the school administrator and find out what's going on and if you feel that there is an opportunity to engage them in uh, in having a conversation about the quality of food that is being served to to the children in schools or in you know in childcare sites start having that conversation there are um, lots of school administrators that are interested in doing this, but honestly don't have the capacity, don't have the time to do this, and are looking for you know volunteers and looking for community members to step in as you start getting engaged in your own community. That's the path to you know to getting engaged in what's happening at the state level and at the federal level. And again, you know, feel feel free to reach out to um, National Farm to School Network affiliates that are that are available all across the country who can also assist you in. Um, you know, in helping figure out what is happening in your own community or what is happening in the school districts that are near you, we can help you with that information. You know, it was very much in the news about how what what the food requirements are for schools and how inadequate those were, how not focused on fresh foods. So uh, do you feel like there's been policy changing there about what the requirements are to be served in public schools? I know public schools aren't the only schools, but let's just talk about that for a moment. Um, do you feel like those guidelines are better now and more more um more focused on requiring fresh foods or do we still have some policy to change? There have been some positive changes through federal level policy that happened in in 2010 mm-hmm. through something called the Child Nutrition Act. And um, that was, I think, after many, many years that there were improvements to the nutrition guidelines for school meal programs. And so I certainly see that as a positive step in the right direction. Um, The legislation called Child Nutrition Act, which is pre-authorized by Congress every five years, is currently in play. It happens every five years and happened in 2010, and it was supposed to happen in 2015, but nothing happened. Um, And we're still waiting and watching to see what will happen in this election year. Um, We there's certainly opportunities to, you know, to do more. So there are more requirements or there are increased requirements for fruits and vegetables in the, in the current guidelines. And oh. schools, you know, operate, I think one thing to understand is that school, school food service operates under very stringent guidelines, but also very 
uh, limited means in terms of what amount of money is available to them to make this meal. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at it, a school meal, uh, a free school meal costs less than three dollars. That's the reimbursement that schools get from the federal government to produce that meal. Out of that three dollars, about a dollar only is assigned to to food costs. The rest is labor and you know infrastructure and equipment and things like that. So. If you think about $3 and out of that $1 for food costs, I mean, think about what you get for $3 on the on the market outside. You know, your Starbucks <laughs> this morning, coffee right. this morning was probably more than that. And so yeah. I'm just trying to put that in perspective. Well-fed kids are are better learners. Um, mm-hmm. That's just the, you know, that's just the way it is. And unless you... Um, unless you invest in, in good food for kids in schools, because most kids... Uh, are eating the meal in school, and that's the only meal that they're eating, you will not be able to see uh, improvements in education and improvements in employment and, you know, improvements in poverty. Thank you so much for laying out um, that although it's a complex problem and a lot of interconnection and a lot of different ways you can focus your energy, I mean, there are still concrete things the everyday person can do. It's farmtoschool.org. Do I have that right? You have that right. Oh, Absolutely. excellent. And one last thing, if I can yes. just add, would, you know, in terms of action, you know, if just cook with kids that are in your life, mm-hmm. you know, get them engaged in enjoying food and, and cooking food with you. Uh, it's just part of a learning that I think stays with kids all their life. And gets them excited about food. That is uh, great advice. And that, and for those of us, like, like I don't have kids, but for I do have nieces and nephews, involving them in helping with when people come over, when families are getting together. So I won't say who, but some people very close to me who just were not raised to cook and were not raised actually with a parent that loved to cook. And they do not like to cook now. Um, and they, you know, everything is either convenience fast food ordering in but um it actually it just super frustrates me because i'm like we're not you know you got to eat more fresh like food you put together with your own hands um so i think it really matters starting really young i feel like i walked away um with new vocabulary for sure and new ideas for action (laughs) (laughs) and 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 also not feeling depressed like there's nothing to, to be done at the individual level thank you anupama i really really appreciate having you on the show Thank you for having me. Up now we have Amber Stott, founder of Food Literacy Center. Her mission is all about getting kids in underserved neighborhoods to eat more fruits and vegetables. Amber, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we dig in uh, into Food Literacy Center and everything you're doing, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how how did you come to be focused not only on, on food, but food in schools and food and kids? Sure. Uh, My background is in nonprofit, and Mm -hmm. I've worked there my whole career working largely in social service agencies, but have been passionate on a personal level about our food system. And the more I got involved on the local level, the more I felt that our food movement 
needed to be applying many of the practices that we were using in social services in order to be more inspiring to get folks to buy into a lot of the messages that we are talking about, you know, in terms of eating different types of food and being more aware of what we're putting in our bodies and really wanted to fill this gap that I was seeing of on the one hand, childhood obesity rates rising and on the other, uh, well-meaning food banks saying, okay, we're going to take junk food off our shelves and now we're going to hand out raw eggplant. <laughs> and I was like, oh gosh, but we aren't telling people what to do with that eggplant to ensure that they're going to be successful. <laughs> they're a difficult vegetable to know what to do with. Exactly. So, um, you know, here in I thought lies the problem. I sought out to fill that gap by starting with the lowest um, or the youngest kids in our communities and essentially ensuring that they grow up with the skills and habits of eating fresh fruits and vegetables and so that they know what to do with them and also find them delicious and help them build those habits from a very early age. Well, I'll never forget, I watched Jamie Oliver had a show on, on TV where he had kids who didn't couldn't name the fruits and vegetables in their raw form because they had never oh, yeah. seen them. So, And, and to be clear, uh, Food Literacy Center, you are in the Northern California area. I mean, we are in a f- food paradise in Northern Car- California. The access, generally speaking, our ability to have amazing fresh fruits and vegetables year-round is second to none, totally. I think, in the country. So it's just more uncomfortably ironic that there's this issue. So so tell me a little bit about what Food Literacy Center does. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. We are in America's farm to fork capital mm-hmm. where we are growing the food that feeds the rest of the nation and the world. And it's beautiful produce and it's growing all around, yet we're working with kids who have never seen broccoli or pears before. Mm. And this is just a result of a broken food system on many levels. And so we we bring this produce, um, we actually partner with the food bank who will get beautiful produce donated from local farms. And we work with other farms directly and we'll bring this beautiful produce into the schools. And we do a combination of cooking classes as well as tasting. Uh, We do something really fun called produce of the day where we invite the kids to just taste something new and different and out of the box, anything from bok choy to a date and um, just trying to get them to become food adventurers so that they grow up with the habit of eating fruits and vegetables and not just saying when they see something new or different saying ew or gross but mm-hmm. that they actually say oh what's that let me taste it mm. so um and essentially this will protect their health for life because we have right here in sacramento 40 percent childhood obesity rates and mm. you see similar numbers across the country we have one in three kids who has type 2 diabetes that's wow. the preventable kind. Right. And we now have kids who have adult diseases like hypertension and stroke. And all of these are preventable if we eat our vegetables. Wow. Um, is there um, so you're talking about bringing farmers in and bringing producers in. Do you also work at all? I know there's some like in the East Bay, Bay Area was a starting place for school gardening, at, like Alice Waters. That was something 
post Chez Panisse, she got very into school gardening projects. Do you, does, does the Food Literacy Center do any of that? Sure. We actually um, have trained with Alice Waters' whole team, and she has visited our program. Um, And we do have a local nonprofit called Soilborn Farms that we partner with. We actually have a farm to school grant Hmm. through the federal government where we partner with a local nonprofit who does school gardens in elementary schools. And then we provide the cooking classes. And then our local school district um, puts the same vegetables that that uh, the two nonprofits are working with on their school cafeteria. So these kids are getting this well-rounded repeat exposure to different fruits and vegetables, uh, and vegetables in particular that are locally um, grown from farmers nearby. And that's been very exciting. But if you look at the statistics of farm to school programs, yeah, only about 20% of the funding is going to programs like food literacy centers, where its main focus is tasting programs and cooking. Mm. And if our ultimate goal is that we want kids consuming and protecting their health by eating these fruits and vegetables, we really need to be putting more focus and more emphasis on these cooking and tasting programs. That's so interesting. So you're saying that in schools, they can be like, oh, look, I'm gardening and and that's great. Um, And they get a sense of what goes into the production. But if there's not a follow through in making it part of their daily diet, then you're missing a link for setting them up lifelong. Ah, that's very, very interesting. Absolutely. And even the school garden folks that we work with will tell us that they mm -hmm. have more success with the school garden when they're able to cook recipes with that produce. So it's really important to get kids eating that because that's what kids do three times a day is eat. Yeah. So what did you expect would be the positive results of these programs? But did you also experience any unexpected positive outcomes? Sure. I mean, I I thought that I could develop a program that could, you know, quote unquote, convince kids to eat vegetables. <laughs> and I was ready for the fight. You know, I was ready for it to be hard. And the thing that surprised me most is it's easy. Wow. Kids love fruits and vegetables. And we, you know, we in America have these very adult attitudes that we place on our kids Hmm. and we tell them, oh, you're not going to like that. Or, oh yeah, you know, vegetables. We kind of have this really negative perception and attitude that we pin on vegetables. And in fact, when you bring them into a school classroom and you get excited about them, kids get excited too. I have never found difficulty in getting kids to eat vegetables. That's the biggest surprise. Um, I thought the program would work, but we actually, after a three month um, trial, we actually found that when we first went into the schools and we would ask kids, does healthy food taste good? About, um, 90% of kids would tell us, no, healthy food does not taste good. But within just three months, 90 plus percent of our kids were telling us, yes, healthy food tastes good. And we would physically see them eating anything and everything we brought into the classroom, whether it was fennel or cabbage, all kinds of things. That is really interesting. So I have a a whole bunch of questions in my head now from this, but one of them, okay, (laughs) I need personal counseling for my my sister um, and and her and my brother-in-law. So I have, uh, she has two boys, 14 and 11, Uh and the 14-year-old's pretty adventurous. He's has, I mean, he's always been that way. He always, he was ordering fish in restaurants, like from quite a young age, which I think is pretty unusual. And the younger son um, does not want to eat a vegetable. And it's not that she doesn't, right? So she, 
Um, you know, so she cooks, uh, and actually, um, my brother-in-law cooks most of their meals and he cooks the full well-rounded meal and I'm a vegan and they, you know, we eat together often. So they see me, you know, regularly eating only <laughs> vegetables and some protein source, but whatever. I mean, it's not like he's not exposed. He just is in that phase and he's 11. Like, what do you do when they've gotten to that age and they are still firmly in the, I hate vegetables camp? Just just keep bringing them back. Uh, you can, you know, offer the one, if it's just two that he likes, keep offering those mm. two and and keep eating the others. And, you know, the more you model, the more you have them in house, the more you have them available, the more you're cooking with them. Um, at Food Literacy Class, what we do is a, a lot of our recipes are written in a way that they're all at what we would call deconstructed. Yeah. So essentially they're, they're things that kids are assembling Maybe they're mixing and stirring, but they're essentially there's choice in the way the recipes are designed. So, for example, uh. making a watermelon cucumber salad, you could choose to leave the cucumber out of that recipe. You've just got a bowl of watermelon with lime juice on it, but that's <laughs> that fine. Good. That's okay. <laughs> um, because we want kids to be able to make their own personal choices and not have any negative experiences with food, but just by simply providing it and having it there and the kids all around them eating the watermelon with the cucumber, those kids who are maybe a little bit afraid or trepidatious about the cucumber eventually will take a bite and give it a try. So I think just continuing to have that exposure and continuing to have um, potentially recipes where, you know, the, the corn could be added or not, mm -hmm. um, but that we're all having the same meal together. Uh, you know, things like burritos are great because, uh, yeah. hey, great, we've got this amazing variety of different vegetables that we're going to stuff into our burrito. You feel free to make whatever kind of burrito you want. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of opportunities where it's readily available, at some point they're going to dig in and see how much you are enjoying it and they'll join in. But you just got to hang tight and, you know, and, and be okay um, that, yeah, it might be months. <laughs> yeah, I take it, I take it, uh, maybe I'm jumping to a conclusion. I take it that you're not maybe a fan of hiding, like pureeing and hiding vegetables and things. Totally correct. Yep. Okay. Time for that very reason, because you're, you're not helping kids develop the habit of eating them. You're, and you're also giving them the message yes. that, they need to be hidden because we don't appreciate them and we don't think they're delicious on their own. You know, I wonder about the school employees and staff. Um, do you find that you end up having a lot of adults who are getting a value out of when you come in? Absolutely. It is not isolated to kids. And the reason we're starting with kids is so that we can start a generation off on the right foot because the last two generations are already lost to this problem, unfortunately. So um, absolutely, when we're in the classroom, we actually have a whole um, training academy called the Food Literacy Academy, where we train community members to become our instructors and our volunteers. And it's a 10-week intensive program. And once they complete it, they're called food geniuses. And um, many people end up joining because they actually also want to learn this stuff themselves. They, they want to help kids and they want to make their community better, mm -hmm. but they also know that they have a learning curve in the subject matter of food literacy. So we see it in our volunteers. We see it in the after-school teachers who are with us absolutely across the board. Any, any adult who comes really in contact with food literacy tells us that they're learning a lot. And the parents, of course, of the right. kids who go home 
and tell, oh, mom, look what I made, or, you know, dad, hear what I learned. They're, they're always coming to us and saying how much they appreciate what their kids have learned. Cultures around the world, their fundamental diet is, is pretty plant-based and proteins Absolutely. become added as a condiment. I mean, that's very common, whether it's South America, Asia, Africa, and these are not, you know, this is a cross-income strata. So, so what, how would you respond if people say you're just you're just bringing this into kids, but their parents won't be if they're in underserved communities to begin with, their parents won't be able to keep this up in the home. Sure, and uh, that's why we start with the food bank. We we go to mm. the food bank, and we've definitely gotten flack for that. You know, pe- people will see us post pictures on Facebook of our kids eating pomegranates or figs, and they'll say, "Oh, where did you get those? You know, those are expensive." It's like we got those at the food bank. We're in mm. the farm to fork capital of America. That's the kind of food that shows up at our food bank that's going to waste otherwise. And these kids don't know that they have access to it and what it is in the first place and how delicious it is. So we're using stuff from the food bank that they absolutely have access to, but they don't know what it is. So um, that's that's the first hump that we need to get over. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it is actually very economical. And, and this was actually one percep- misperception I had when I started the program. I was teaching a class to foster youth and I went in thinking that my whole lesson for the day was going to be about teaching them that it's cheaper to make food from scratch than to buy it fast food. And that was the first question I posed to the class, which is cheaper. And every single kid in the classroom said cooking at home. Really? Very low-income families know this because they're already on a budget. And so they are cooking at home. The, The difference is we could get those food budgets down even more if they were actually cooking from scratch. You know, many are opening cans of processed you know, sauces and those Uh, kinds of things. Um, They're not necessarily making scratch tomato sauce, for example, mm. um, which is even cheaper than a jar of ragu. So this is the the gap is that they, you know, they feel they are cooking, but they're using a lot of the, you know, mixes that you just sort of add boiling water to your cup of noodles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's, there's a lot, a lack of nutrients in these diets as well. Leanne Brown, she's got that great cookbook, Good and Cheap. And she yes. makes recipes that are real healthy on a food stamp budget. And yep. so you've got, you know, those kinds of um, cookbooks out now and Food Literacy Center. We're we're a nonprofit on a budget. So the, <laughs> the recipes that we're making in the classroom are also very budget friendly for families. So and they, we have a lot of them on our website, too. Well, Leanne was part of that wonderful keynote that you were part of at Blog Her Food last year in Chicago and talked about her book, Good and Cheap. Um, And you, of course, talked about Food Literacy Center. And there's just so many good things going on and trying to bring this this message um, to more families. Because we had met at Blog Her Food, um, Leanne actually donated like 200 books that we were able to pass out to all of our families this past year. Oh, awesome. Thanks for bringing us together. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Thank you for telling me. That's awesome. That was going to be my next question, though. So right now you're in Sacramento. Is there any push to either expand your own operations or partner up and bring your curriculum to other parts of the country. And I especially wonder about parts of the country where they're not, you know, so close to so much fresh produce. Eventually one day, and we are actually a step closer to our dream of being statewide or national. Mm. Uh, We just received our very first AmeriCorps award. And this is a national level program where we receive funding to pay a stipend to 30 
volunteers who will be trained as food geniuses that we can then deploy out into schools throughout our community. And many of the programs who have this same level of federal AmeriCorps um, grant are statewide programs. So this is um, our pilot year with the program. And I believe that in the next five years, we will be able to launch this program statewide. And then we'll we'll talk about, you know, whether we can get into Iowa or Illinois or some of those places where the produce is not um, available as year round as it is here. But um, we're, we're one step closer. This is sort of a random question, but for those parts of the country where it's much more seasonal that they're going to have access to fresh produce that I mean that's that's affordable and and seasonal and local so it's not being like I mean there's all these other issues involved with trucking things out of season or out of locality all over the place those have other impacts but do you feel like it's better though that they they do what they can with frozen vegetables or canned vegetables and keep them sort of year round even when it's um, you're not going to have access to fresh produce just to keep keep it going, I guess? Absolutely. I I mean, well, in, in Iowa and Illinois, they're going to be eating our beautiful produce from here in California. So yep. I would never poo-poo that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but absolutely, you know, doing what you can locally to support your own economy when your farmers have got beautiful watermelon and corn this type of year, uh, this time of year, and then transitioning to, you know, consuming and even the frozen products that they're going to get are likely from California if yeah. you're in Iowa yeah, that's in true. the middle of winter. Yep. Yeah. Um, and and that's a very legitimate and great route to go. You know, canned tomatoes, same thing. They're likely coming from here in California, mm-hmm. um, but they're going to be a great source of nutrients. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's all about where you live and being practical at the yep. end of the day. You so, know, same here in California. We're not necessarily pushing our kids to eat organic because we just know that it's not the affordable option for them at this time right. and in their their lives. So we make sure that they understand what the differences are, but we we certainly would not expect that they could live on an organic food diet. So I always like to ask, um, first of all, repeat your URL, so how people can find you. But if there are people who are up in the Sacramento County and, you know, in the area and they wanted to help your program, um, what should they do? What could they do? And how how do you think they could look for, if they're not in your area, how could they look for similar types of programs to try and help? Our website is foodliteracycenter.org. And you can find out about other types of programs similar to ours, actually through the Edible Schoolyard Network, which is the oh, program cool. that Alice Waters' team runs. And they have an online database uh, where folks can upload if they have a program in mm. you know San Diego or in Selma they can they can log in and create a profile so you could go and learn all about the various programs in your own community um, if they are listed on that network and That's it's cool. you know it's definitely a, a growing movement um, mm-hmm. not all communities have them but certainly larger cities most large cities have at least some type of either garden or or tasting programs somewhere. 
And how could they help Food Literacy Center? We are always looking for volunteers. We And in fact, if you live in New York or Iowa and you want to become an AmeriCorps member with us, we're looking and recruiting um, all year long for those open positions. And, um, you know, if you're here right here in Sacramento, it's also Food Literacy Month in September. Mm. And folks could make a donation. It costs just $120 a year to fund one student through a food literacy program. And that just boils down to about $10 a month. And so we're doing our membership drive right now for folks to become food literati and join us. (laughs) Well, Amber, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. There's so much great stuff happening in this space. I feel like food, um, you know, it's a lot of people don't know. It's the number one driver of Internet innovation, Internet traffic. It's like right after porn, basically, as the driver of why people go to the Internet. Um, It's how Pinterest and Instagram uh, became so quickly popular because people were sharing food. And it's because it's universal. We all eat. Um, and, then, and then a lot of people don't really think about the fact that despite it being at the very foundation of our hierarchy of needs, if you're going to get all like academic wonky about it, um, <laughs> despite it being at this very foundation, we all need to eat. We all eat every single day. We all make decisions every single day that access and justice are sometimes out of reach and it becomes a political issue and it becomes a societal issue. Um, But I feel like there's a real, there's been now a real movement um, to try to address this, to try to think of food as something that's more a fundamental, not just a fundamental need, but a fundamental right that we should be able to, that that being a low income shouldn't um, consign you to eating like shit, basically. Um, and and having very few options. So I'm really excited about the stuff you're working on and and all the things I see out there. And so thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for telling people how they can help, and thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, and I will just say that I believe that the food movement is going to be the social justice movement of the next century. So thank you for talking about these issues and having me on. I really appreciate it. For this episode of Who She Knows, a She Knows Media podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Camahort Page, Chief Community Officer of She Knows Media. Please tweet me at Elisa C or leave a message for us on either the blogger or She Knows Media Facebook page. Or now you can email us at podcast at she knows.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening.